This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here in the Situation Room on tactics where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we do welcome you to the program. Thank you for spending some of your time here with us. We're going to, as we have been doing for, I don't know, really the uh, the past, I don't know, uh, it seems like forever now, but it's really only been a couple of months. So we're going to just jump right into our Alabama coronavirus update here. Let's go ahead and switch to, oh, there we go. The Alabama Department of Public Health and their latest numbers. So you'll look here and see that uh, we have 8,437 confirmed cases in the state of Alabama with 412 being added since Thursday. That is the single biggest day that we've had in new confirmed coronavirus cases. So we're definitely going to be talking about that here in a second. 315 deaths. Again, that's that's not our biggest day, but it's significant and it's up from what we have been seeing here recently. So we'll get into all of that, uh, the hospitalizations. And one thing that I did want to bring up here is that the testing has not really kept pace. It's very sporadic. It's It seems to go up some days and, and d- not down, but you know, at a lower rate of increase than other days. And sometimes it stops completely. I don't know if that's a record keeping thing or we're just in, in very staggered fashion doing all of our testing for the state, but that is something that is worthy of note. So let's go ahead and take a look at the total coronavirus cases. Now you may notice that if you're looking at the total cases and you look all the way over to today's bar, that's a pretty noticeable uptick even on this pretty long chart. Like, you're looking at a chart that now spans over about a month and a half, and there's a bar for every single individual day. And if you're looking at this, even if you're not somebody that may necessarily be looking for it, you will notice that over here on the far right for 5-5, that there is a pretty substantial uptick in the number of cases. Like I said, this is our biggest single gain from one day to the next in one day of confirmed cases that we have ever had. And so it does make sense that you're going to be able to notice that even if you're not looking at all of the statistics right away. Now, the, uh, the biggest statistic that I want to talk about today, though, is this next one new coronavirus cases, you can really notice a difference there. In fact, the bar is is uh, so staggering on the single-day gains that it almost hits right up into my Alabama Department of Public Health logo that I've placed up there. And you will notice that it's not just breaking the previous record. It's breaking it by a substantial amount because you'll look there and see that the previous record and the the second highest day that we've had, which was only slightly lower than that, were floating somewhere around the 340-ish mark. That was the most we'd ever had in a single day, and that was about three weeks ago now. And today breaks that by quite a bit with 412. That's a substantial increase over even the biggest day that we have had. So that does make a difference. That That's a pretty big Uh, that's a pretty big leap there uh, on the new coronavirus cases. So 
I mean, that that's a significant jump on that, and, and we need to talk about why that is. I'm actually getting a comment here that's asking uh, if, if I trust the Alabama Department of Public Health stats. Actually, I do, to, for the most part. I think that just based on observing the data and giving a report on it every single day, there have definitely been some problems, some hiccups. Uh, and considering what a big undertaking this is with keeping all of these records, that's frankly understandable. I mean, I, I wish that we lived in a perfect world and these stats didn't necessarily do that, but I do believe that they're doing the best with their record keeping. They're doing the best that they can. Is it perfect? Probably not. We've seen days where their testing all of a sudden just drops off, and, and I don't mean like it just stops getting recorded for a day, although that's happened as well. But we've even seen events where we're actually looking at the numbers and all of a sudden we had 50,000 tests and the next day we've got 20,000 tests and then it usually ticks back up. So there's definitely some errors, but we have to go off of what we've got. And I don't think that the Alabama Department of Public Health is skewing records. I don't think they're trying to, to fiddle with them or anything like that. I think that they're doing the best thing that they, I think they really are trying to keep honest records now. The real question in that that you may not have, have thought to ask is, can we trust the records and, and when it comes to the, uh, not the record keeping or them trying to assemble the records, but more how they're getting the records? Well, they have already said, and, and we're very transparent about it, so I give them kudos for it, that we already had an incident earlier in this coronavirus scare about, I want to say about two and a half, maybe three weeks ago that there were some numbers that were inaccurate and the Alabama Department of Public Health dug into it and corrected the numbers because they were getting some false positives when in fact those were actually negatives. And so it has been an issue. These things aren't perfect, but we do have to work off of what we have. I don't think that it is a system that is so messed up and, and so fallible that we should discount them or not pay attention to them. So that was kind of a, a long answer to a short question, which is, yeah, I, I do believe them for the most part. I think they, you know, occasionally get it wrong, but they're trying to get it right. And I, I think that they're trying to be as upfront as they can, because obviously that would be, uh, that, that would be a mess if it wasn't. Um, another thing that I wanted to bring up is the new testing, and this is the statistic since we were talking about the accuracy of these records. This is the statistic that has been most prone to problems. And you'll notice there that on that graph, you'll see some days where testing just doesn't happen, and that's probably not that the testing isn't happening, but the records aren't being kept on those days, and they just kind of all flood into the system at once, which is why those days where there's not testing is usually followed by a pretty substantial uptick in testing. But you'll notice today that testing is actually way down, which is to be expected because over the weekend we had another one of those testing lulls where we had zero for a couple of days and then about three times that normal rate, uh, about three times that really, uh, when it comes to testing and then it dropped off again. So today is... If you're looking at it overall, we're only slightly below average where the testing was compared to the rates roughly where we're used to seeing and, and seeing that big drop off after a day where it looks like what happened is we had about three days worth of testing statistics being delivered at one point. 
that's really not all that out of the blue. That's that's pretty understandable at this point. So let's go ahead and look at the uh, coronavirus. If, if it'll come up, there we go. Uh, the new COVID-19 deaths in the state of Alabama. So the deaths are not outrageous today. As you can see, there have been several days, about a, I think it's about a half dozen days that have higher rates of death in the state of Alabama than today, but it is up. And we had enjoyed a couple of days, and, and granted, the death rates are always lower on the weekend. But we saw an uptick in those a little bit yesterday, and then it got back to above normal levels today because we were used to seeing it hover somewhere around the 15 per day mark, somewhere around the 12 to 15, and today we had a significant uptick in that, uh, almost 20. I think the final tally for today was either 18 or 19. So, tragically, there have been more Alabamians that have lost their life today, and it's not overwhelming, but it's also not something to be ignored, the fact that the death rate is climbing, and hopefully this is not a trend, because it is on a steady three-day uptick, but the odds of seeing you double or triple the death rates that we had today are extremely unlikely. Like I said, the, the biggest day that we've ever had was 34. I don't think that we're going to see rates close to that. I think what's happening is we're getting pretty close to leveling off at somewhere between 15 and 20, then that's the trend that we're going to see. And then if history is any teacher, they're going to basically drop the bottom's going to drop out of it on the weekends and we'll have no to very little deaths on the weekends and then they'll kick back up and this is just going to be the way that it is for a while. Uh, and it's also important to remember too that, and I know I've said this a thousand times, the hospital, the hospitalization rates and the death rates, those are lagging stats. And the thing about lagging stats is that the hospitalization usually lags maybe uh, there's just a pretty big range on that one, but it typically lags anywhere from three to four days after our confirmation. And usually the death rate lags anywhere up to two weeks after we see more confirmed cases. And so if we're seeing the big swing, the big uptick that we did today, and, and there's no way to sugarcoat it, this was just a bad day. If we're looking at the new cases for the novel Wuhan coronavirus, and we're comparing that to the death stats and the hospitalization stats, what's probably going to happen is we will see the fruits of that. We'll see the uptick in hospitalizations uh, roughly Friday-ish, maybe Saturday. And then deaths will probably more than likely be reflected about two weeks from now, maybe a week and a half. So we're going to see an uptick in deaths around that point since we're seeing this uptick in overall but, but there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up again, because remember I mentioned this yesterday. I think that even though those lagging stats and that rule is going to hold true, that what you're also going to see in conjunction with that is you're going to see an increase in deaths and an increase in hospitalizations. However, and this is just a theory, but some of the data seems to suggest this, that you are going to see an increase, but not at the rates that we've seen before. Because I think what's going to be happening now that this thing has been floating around the state for about a month and a half is that the people that are going to be getting, having confirmed cases of corona and, and wind up going out and getting it, 
those things are going to increase and the death and hospitalization are going to increase at a smaller rate because it's primarily younger people, people that are not at risk, do not have risk factors for this virus going out and getting it now. Whereas at the beginning, the majority of the deaths and the majority of the hospitalizations were people that either just somehow had bad luck and wound up catching it anyway, despite the fact that they were self-quarantining. And so once you once you have more people getting out into the world, most of those people that were going to catch it have already caught it. Again, we'll have to see where that goes, but that's what I'm going to see. So an increase, but not quite the increase that we've become uh, accustomed to seeing. Let's look at the hospitalization rate, because this is another important statistic we need to sort of keep an eye on. So the hospitalization rate, if you'll notice over there on today, our rates today are up. And that's a little bit strange because, like I said, this tends to be a lagging statistic and our hospitalization rates have not been something that is out of the norm for the past few days. So today is a bit of an outlier. It is not the biggest day that we've ever had for hospitalizations. It's uh, It'd be the second. But it is a substantial uptick. Having uh, 50, I, I want to say today's rate was 57 57, seven new hospitalizations is not something to be taken lightly. And why is that? Well, I really do think that it is probably from people getting out more a little bit. You know, like I said, going out and, and actually... Because there are people that have no risk factors that are extremely healthy that do have to be hospitalized with this thing. They typically don't die, but they do have to be hospitalized. And so this one might be reflective of people starting to get out a little bit more and they wind up catching this thing. The death rate, probably not, because it's so much of a lagging statistic that we're not going to see the results of that until later. But, but you can feel it in the air. You can see it uh, in the, the news that we've seen. You've seen it if you've been out and about, that more people are starting to get back to something that more resembles a regular routine, I know that I was driving down Atlanta Highway the other day to pick up a, a grocery order, and I, I mean, it, it it was a little thinner than normal, and I could tell that there was a difference in traffic around midday, uh, you know, in this area, but not by much. I It was still a pretty noticeable midday traffic sort of set up, and, and that means those people were probably going somewhere. Some of them may just be out for a drive and, and may not be uh, doing anything that would break social distancing protocol or uh, go to, you know, may not necessarily have essential jobs. Maybe maybe they don't even get out of their car. They're just going for a pleasure ride. That's possible, but it seems unlikely that in large numbers that is what is going on. And so the more probable explanation is you are seeing people move around a little bit. You are seeing people get out a little bit more and not necessarily stick to the stay-at-home orders like they normally or they have been doing for the past several weeks. And that is going to manifest itself in the new cases, in the hospitalizations, and to a lesser degree, and going to happen a little bit later, but we're probably going to expect this, an increase in the death rate as well. The thing that is important to remember when you see all of this is that this was always known. This is not new information, and ending the social distancing and, and getting out and moving around a little bit that was what was always known. We, we always knew that at some point the shutdown would have to end. 
And when it did end, we would see an uptick in those rates and in the confirmed cases and the deaths and the hospitalizations. That was never the purpose of the shutdown. The purpose of the shutdown was never to decrease the number of hospitalizations and the, and the number of people that got it. The purpose was to decrease the overall deaths that would result from a lack of resources and a lack of hospitalization, which at this point is unlikely to happen. You remember that when this whole thing started, what we were preached to ad, ad nauseum, which, I mean, I agreed, with the perp I agreed with it at the time. I still think that it was probably the right thing to do. It was probably the right call, was to try to flatten that curve and to get it to where the hospitalizations could Because you'll notice, when you look at all of those charts, the amount of people getting sick are not different. What is different is how spread out it is. And that was always the point, not to overwhelm the healthcare system. We knew going into this thing a couple months ago that if this shutdown were to take place, that when people would come back out again, we would start seeing those rates increase. But that was done because we were trying to spread out the number of people that got it all at the same time. And so what you're going to see is there's going to be an awful lot of people that are going to look at the increase of the deaths, the hospitalizations, and the virus and say, see, this is, this is a testament to why we should be staying in longer. This is the reason why we were supposed to stay shut down longer than we were. Well, no, as long as we don't have people that are denied health care because of a, a overwhelming of the healthcare system, if our hospitals wind up getting swamped and we look like Italy did about 40 days ago, okay, then obviously we opened up way too early. It does not look like that is what is going to happen. It appears as though what is going to happen, based on all of the data that I'm looking at and everything that we're seeing now, that we are going to start reopening. Yes, the rates are going to go up of confirmed cases. Yes, the hospitalizations are going to go up. And yes, the death rates even are going to go up. But until we start having people and start having Americans that are actually denied the ability to have a ventilator or have medical treatment because the the hospital system is so overwhelmed that they just don't have the resources to devote to them, then if that never happens, then we've done our job. And I, what I want to impress upon you right now is that New York is already in a downward projection. In other words, it, it started to level off. It's starting to go down. You're seeing less new cases. You're seeing less uh, hospitalizations, less deaths, because even though they did try to social distance and tried the shutdown, that's virtually impossible to do in a city that is that densely populated, and it seems as though that didn't make much of an impact, to be perfectly honest. If New York, the most densely populated area in the country, it was ground zero for this thing, and they are starting to already see recovery coming up, then why would it not make sense to start opening up other states that are not as densely populated that no matter what they did, shut down or no, even if New York completely shut down and they were enforcing it and they had police officers stationed at every door seeing to it that people didn't go out, I mean, that would pretty much be the only way to even uh, get anywhere close to the infection rate being lower than it would be in slap out Alabama. That's just, that's not a thing. When you're comparing people that are that closely 
clustered together in a small area, of course they're going to be more susceptible to it. And the plan that is going forward for the city of New York should look completely different than what's going to happen in, in Podunk, Montana. Th those are completely different strategies because they're dealing with a completely different set of situations. For the same reason that an earthquake plan or a tornado plan is going to look completely different depending on what area you're in. If you're in an area with an awful lot of trailer parks, you probably need to have a pretty extensive tornado plan if you have a climate that is conducive to those elements, you know, coming together in that exact way. What we're looking at right now is a whole bunch of people that are going to see this and start freaking out and saying, see, we didn't shut down for long enough, when in reality, we knew that these things were going to happen all the time. The only way to keep the rates roughly at where we were is that if everybody continued to self-quarantine indefinitely, the only thing that would have stopped that is if we had some kind of vaccine or treatment. And asking people to stay in place, first of all, makes no sense because we were told from the onset that that was not the purpose of this thing. We were always told that it was to keep the healthcare system from being overwhelmed, and there is no indication that that is going to happen. Even freaking New York City, which has the worst possible set of environmental factors. It's cold there. It's damp there. <laughs> uh, they, they have the really big, tightly clustered population. They, the primary way that they get around is the subway system, which is like a giant germ tube that you can ride on. And by the way, that never got shut down. The entire shutdown that took place, that never happened, even though that was by far the biggest hazard to people. All of that being true. All of that being true, and New York still never had even a single patient to be denied health care because of what was going on, and now you're telling the rest of the country that we've all got a shelter in place because we might have an overrun health care system? That's just not realistic. The data doesn't back that conclusion up. And by the way, I'm not the only one that is noticing this. In local news, we actually do have a story today of a Baldwin County Sheriff named Huey Haas Mack. Haas is just a nickname, I'm assuming. Uh, you know, maybe he's related to Little Joe. I don't know. But uh, anyway, Sheriff Mack says that he is not going to enforce Governor Ivey's stay-at-home orders. Now, you may remember yesterday that he's not the only sheriff that has done this. We talked about yesterday the Blunt County Sheriff doing the same thing. So this is Sheriff Mack talking about why he decided that he's not going to enforce Governor Ivey's Safer at home orders. That's the newest rendition of the stay at home orders. Uh, yesterday, uh, after a lot of uh, prayerful consideration and talking to a lot of people in our community, I wrote a letter to Governor Ivey, and I stated in that letter that it's time. It's time to modify the order, and it's time to lift the order on our businesses. It's time to lift the order uh, on our religious institutions and allow everybody to get back to meeting and get back to business. You know, I'm confident in the people of Baldwin County and the people of Alabama have proven themselves that they have taken this issue seriously, that they are going to take uh, all the recommendations, and we know that there's gonna be recommendations. We know that there's gonna be some restrictions as we go on through this pandemic, such things as wearing protective masks or practicing social distancing, or even perhaps limiting uh, the number of large groups or people that can be in one location. But that responsibility should lie with the people. That responsibility should lie with each business 
and with each religious institution. And so I wrote a letter yesterday asking Governor Ivey to immediately modify her current order and allow Alabamians to go back to work and to go back to worship. I think this is important to our community. In that spirit, uh, I've also, uh, in consultation with my deputy sheriffs and uh, other law enforcement, uh, I have also added that while we will continue to notify businesses uh, if they are in violation of the governor's order, we'll notify them that the governor's order is still in place because there are other institutions out there that are a part of this. There's the health department and there are many regulatory agencies outside of the sheriff's office that uh, have a say in the enforcement of that rule. But the sheriff's office will not take any law enforcement action on those businesses or on those religious institutions that are wanting to meet and wanting to get back to business. To deny an order is just to deny it. But what we really need to do is we need to ask the governor to change the order. Uh, we need to ask her to lift this order, allow Alabamians to get back to work and to get back to collective worship. I think that's gonna make the biggest difference as we go through this together. Right, so as I said, that is the Sheriff of Baldwin County, Huey Haas Mack. I, I think they just call him Haas Mack, but anyway. So that's Sheriff Mack, and you can watch that video and see that this is not somebody that would fit the stereotype that a lot of people that are calling for or, or, or calling law enforcement officials that are abdicating their duty. He doesn't fit the stereotype of, of people that are coming after law enforcement officials that are saying that. Uh, he's not some, like, giant flag-waving um, Trump supporter or anything like that. I mean, he may support Trump, I don't know. But they always want to conjure up this image in your head of some goofy county sheriff that is a hayseed and doesn't know what he's doing and is basically just screaming into the camera, yeah, freedom, something like that. I mean, not that that necessarily would be a bad thing, but they want to paint the picture of them as, as some kind of crazy rabble rouser or radical. He gives a very measured response there. He's just saying, look, we thought about it a lot. We talked about it. We prayed about it. We eventually came to the conclusion that this was not something that we could do which, by the way, is very reminiscent of what we saw yesterday. It's very similar to what we saw from the sheriff of Blunt County, Sheriff Moon, who just said, I, I thought about it, I prayed about it, and eventually I just came to the conclusion that I cannot continue to enforce these laws because I believe that they are wrong. And this sheriff is saying, look, I, I don't want to buck the system. I'm not just trying to cause trouble for anybody. I, I issued a formal letter to Governor Ivey, so that means he's trying to go through the proper channels, trying to explain himself. This isn't somebody that came to this decision just on a whim. And keep in mind that a lot of people that are trying to make this same case, if those were the, the kind of impulsive, radical people that they were, talking about law enforcement officials, don't you think they would have done that from the beginning because a lot of these guys are looking at it and said look we were okay with enforcing it for a while but it's past time to end this and looking at all of this and, and the response right now he is now the third sheriff in the state of alabama to do that because as we talked about yesterday blunt county sheriff has already done this sheriff moon and then the sheriff of lamar county has also said that he'll do the same thing 
I could go into a long monologue about the right and wrongness of it or whether or not this is okay or not okay, the legality of it. I did all that on yesterday's show, so I'm not going to rehash and retread old news, but the, the reason that I bring this one up today, even though the commentary would have been roughly the same, is what it does show is that there is a, not just one person, not just one outlier, there is a groundswell of support starting to bubble up from law enforcement officials that are tired of enforcing laws that don't make sense to them and, according to their own analysis, say that it hurts people and that it would be far more beneficial to allow people to get back to work, to get back to worship. And all I'm saying is this is going to be something that becomes pretty common if this continues much longer. You're going to have sheriffs all over the the state of Alabama saying, look, we're just not going to enforce it. And you'll also notice in there that the sheriff is saying, hey, if other law enforcement officials come in, we're not going to stop them. Like, if Aaliyah shows up and makes everybody leave the beach, we're not going to stand in their way. We're not trying to stage some kind of crazy rebellion. We're just saying that this is wrong and we're not going to be the ones to enforce it anymore. I mean, that's somebody that has very seriously considered this, thought about the ramifications, and ultimately decided that taking this action was what was best for his community. And I commend him on his thoughtful decision. And it's important to note, too, that the reason that this is incredibly significant is because even though every county sheriff is significant and we, we all you know, care about our sheriffs, their constitutional officers, regardless of how big their county is or not. But Baldwin County is the largest county in the state of Alabama, going by square acreage, and it is the fifth most populated one in the state. So as opposed to smaller jurisdictions, Baldwin County doing this, that's a pretty darn big deal, especially when you consider that is the location where most of Alabama's beaches are that people go to visit, and specifically beaches were were talked about and they were a point of contention and a point of discussion all throughout this thing. And so I really do think that this is going to be something that is even more significant than what we had yesterday with the Blunt County Sheriff announced. But ultimately what this comes down to, and the reason that I commend the sheriff, is because he actually trusts his citizens to take care of themselves. He trusts his citizens to make good decisions and to act responsibly. I'm sure if there were somebody acting irresponsibly, that sheriff would be the first one to put a stop to it. Like if you have one guy walking around sneezing on people in the middle of this pandemic or obviously trying to cause trouble, yeah, that's somebody that I would say that the sheriff would be in the wrong for doing. But he's saying, look, people that are gathering together in their church to worship, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to go into their churches and drag them out of their places of worship and either jail them or fine them for doing something that the Constitution guarantees us a right to do. I'm just not going to do it. And ultimately, that is a fantastic lesson in federalism. It's the reason that we have a federal system instead of a national system. It was part of the vision of our founders that when a higher level of government infringes upon the people's rights, that there would be local officials 
that are more accountable to the people at the local level that would stand up and say no more. That was always the design of the founders. That if something like this happened where people's freedoms are obviously being abused, that maybe not every single one, but eventually you would have a groundswell of local support. Look at what happened in Virginia with their new gun laws. That again was something that the state did. The state had a right to make the law that they wanted to, but the sheriffs are looking at that new law and saying, yeah, we're, we're not going to enforce that. We can't. That's a violation of constitutional rights. We're not going to enforce it. And as I was saying yesterday, one of the things that this should be a takeaway for is that federalism ultimately needs a person at the local level that is willing to comply. To be honest, that's really true of any form of government because it's, it, I mean, even if you're in a socialist place, uh, if you're living in the USSR, at some point you have to have somebody at the local level that is willing to comply to enforce that law. So that's even really true there, but it's part of the design and it's something that the federalist system was specifically designed to do with that one. So ultimately, what we have to keep in mind and what we need to look at is that the federal system is essentially doing its job. That it is specifically tailored to allow for local officials that if there is a, a long chain of grievances and the people are, are getting tired of it, that they're supposed to be the people that guard their rights. And, and we have a court system to help sort that out. I'm not saying that there are not systems in place and uh, institutions in place to help us sort all of those things out. But ultimately, that was something that is, is not the exception to the rule. It is the rule or was always designed to be the rule in a federalist society. And it's also important to note that courage is contagious. I don't know if this sheriff had been thinking about doing this for a while or he saw Sheriff Moon and decided to follow suit, but either way, courage is contagious. And the fact that we now have three of our constitutional officers in the state of Alabama saying, no more, we're not going to do it anymore, we're not going to enforce this unconstitutional order, maybe that's something that we're going to see more of in the coming days. I would expect that we will. Because sometimes when one person does it, it doesn't catch on and that's the end of it. Now that we've already got one person leading the charge in Sheriff Moon and then two more following suit, I think you're going to see an awful lot of sheriffs saying, yeah, we're just not going to do it. And at that point, Governor Ivey has to make a choice. She can either make herself the enemy of the people or the enemy of the sheriffs or go ahead and make it to where the sheriffs can do their job and protect the constitutional rights of their citizens, because in the position that they are in right now, it is impossible for them to do both. We're going to take a break here, and we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid... Well, we actually have a double dose of Daily Dose of Stupid, so you're getting two doses for the price of one today, but they are related to the same topic. It's, it's not two separate stories, it's two connected stories. And it is going to be dealing with the latest big political story, well, for any of the news that's not talking 24 hours a day about the coronavirus, 
Joe Biden and his sexual assault allegations. So, two doses, but the same strain of medicine. Getting a little variety here. The first dose is Biden trying to explain how his accusers are incorrect and the standard that he is using to criticize them is exactly the same as the standard he was using to criticize people like Brett Kavanaugh and Anita Hill. This is, of course, impossible because he is using two different standards. But he does make a valiant effort for anybody that seems to be, at the very least, and I'm not trying to make fun of the man for this, it actually is kind of tragic to see this soap opera play out on live TV, that it's getting harder and harder for Joe Biden to defend himself, not only because more evidence is coming out against him, but also because, I mean, the guy's just not mentally what he used to be. And Joe Biden's always been a guy that kind of has a reputation for gaffes and saying goofy things. You can look at old footage of him, which we're going to do a little bit of today, and tell that he used to be significantly sharper than he is right now. And I, I really am worried about him on that front. But nonetheless, regardless of that, we still have to hold him like anybody else that would be running for public office accountable. So Joe Biden really, I mean, all kinds of mental gymnastics try to explain how what he said back during the Kavanaugh hearings or in regards to Anita Hill, that it was correct then. And what he is saying now is correct. And they're the same thing, which they're obviously not. So to understand exactly what is happening, what is going on, for those of you that may not be as familiar with Joe Biden's accusation, what happened is he had a person that was a staffer for him back in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, it would have been 27 years ago by this point. So an almost 30-year-old accusation, this woman named Tara Reed, who claims that at one point he pinned her up against a wall and trying to keep this at least somewhat family-friendly, but if you have little kids, you, you may want to, you know, move them out uh, here for a second or, or turn the sound off. He penetrated her with his fingers. So, you know, pretty serious allegation. That, I mean, with absolutely no question, qualifies as sexual assault. Some people would even say because penetration was involved that it technically meets the definition of rape. Again, that, that kind of depends on the legal definition that you're using, but either way, I mean, really, really bad. If that is true, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, but if that turns out to be true, I think that you would be correct in saying that Joe Biden is one of the worst people on the planet. Somebody that would do that and use his power, abuse another person, in particular a woman who is defenseless at this point and getting away with it scot-free and even rising to the level of being the vice president of this country for 27 years, that's about as low as it gets. Like He's one of the worst people on planet Earth, if that is the case. However, the evidence is not that conclusive. So what we're looking at here is, is as far as Tara Reid and, and what she's using as support for her claim, and this is one thing that's very difficult with dealing with any allegations of sexual assault or rape, especially ones that are really old, because it's really hard to find evidence on that. And they almost always happen at a time where there's only two people, there's no witnesses. That, that tends to be when things like this take place. And that makes it very, very difficult to corroborate this or to prove it one way or the other. But she does have four people now that have come out and testified to say 
that, I mean, not testified under oath, but you know what I'm saying, that have basically said that, yes, I remember Tara Reid talking to me about this or an event that vaguely resembles this around the time of that taking place. One of her friends that, that mentioned this, for example, said that she does remember that at this time period, she talked to her about this sexual assault happening, but she didn't mention any names. Still, that does, ga that does give some weight to the idea that this happened and it was Joe Biden that was doing it. Oddly enough, this same person also said that she believes that Joe Biden did this and still supports him, which is really crazy, but we'll talk about that a little bit later with, with the second dose of stupid. But suffice it to say that with what's going on right here, right now, that is the what's going on. And there's also a Larry King segment where Larry King had a caller. Remember, this is back when Larry King was on CNN. And it happened in the 90s, not too long after this thing allegedly took place. And they confirmed that it was Tara Reid's mother who was asking about a sexual assault for somebody that, you know, presumably was her daughter. So there is some corroborating evidence. Is that ironclad? No. Does it prove that Joe Biden did this thing? It kind of makes you think that it's at least possible and that there may be something to it. But as far as being able to say that absolutely Joe Biden did this, it certainly wouldn't meet the qualification in a court of law. But that's where we stand right now. And it's important to note that these allegations are significantly more credible than anything against Brett Kavanaugh or Clarence Thomas. Because in their cases, with Christine Blasey Ford and Anita Hill, well, it's already automatically, even if we had none of that corroborating evidence, it's automatically more credible than the Kavanaugh hearing because we can actually prove that Tara Reid did in fact know Joe Biden. We couldn't even do that with Ford's case. With Anita Hill, it's roughly the same. Now, Anita Hill did claim that there was a, to, to give you a little bit of backstory on that, she claimed that Justice Thomas once took a pubic hair and put it on a, a can of Coke that she was presumably going to drink and he was trying to, I don't know, trick her into doing that or something, which would have been a bad thing to do. And certainly sexual harassment still wouldn't be sexual assault, still wouldn't be as serious as what Joe Biden is accused of doing, as, as bad as that would be. And that would be horrible behavior if that had actually happened. There was no evidence other than her word that it ever did happen. But that would be horrible if it ever did happen. But even if that were correct, still wouldn't be as bad, nearly as bad as what Joe Biden is accused of doing. So. All that being said, let's go ahead and look at what Joe Biden himself has to say in his defense. This is a clip from Joe Biden, and we'll do a comparison on the Today Show when the, when the Kavanaugh hearings were going on, talking about how women should be given the benefit of the doubt. The woman should be given the benefit of the doubt and not be, not be uh, um, you know, uh, abused again by the system. Mm. It takes enormous courage for a woman to come forward and the bright lights of millions of people watching and relive something that happened to her, assert that something happened to her, and she should be treated with respect. So Joe Biden asserts that if a woman is not given the benefit of the doubt, according to that clip, that what that means is that she is being abused again. 
And Joe Biden now has this accuser, Tara Reid, who has come forward to use his own verbiage there, come out in the bright lights, come out into the public, and, and courageously declared that she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden. Joe Biden asserts that she's wrong. In other words, not giving her the benefit of the doubt. So does that mean that Joe Biden is now abusing her? Maybe you could make the case, and I'm willing to make this case. Maybe you could make the case that because Joe Biden would have personal knowledge of this, because, of course, if he had done this, he would have been here, because it didn't happen that you could make an exception for Joe Biden. Well, if that is the case, then that wouldn't excuse all of the people that are continuing to support Joe Biden. According to Joe Biden's definition there, that if those people are not giving this woman the benefit of the doubt, then they are abusing her according to his own standard that he presented in his own words by not giving her the benefit of the doubt and just believing her when it comes to these accusations against him. And another thing, too, I don't remember in any of Joe Biden's official statements or interviews that he's done I don't remember at any point him talking about how brave Tara Reid is and how courageous this is, which granted, if he knows that he never sexually assaulted this woman, I wouldn't either. But the point is, there's a very different tone being put out now as opposed to everybody lauding praise for people like Christine Blasey Ford and Anita Hill when they came out. They were brave and heroes, and, and now... The exact opposite is happening by many on the left, many even postulating that she is doing so for monetary gain or political gain, which is also hilarious because when anybody on the right suggested that may be the motivation behind Kavanaugh or Anita Hill's um, accusations or right here in the state of Alabama, Roy Moore, whenever conservatives said that that might be the motivation for them, they were decried as conspiracy theorists and, and just trying to run defense for their political candidates. It's a completely different standard here. And just so you, just to make clear that the mere act of coming forward is something that Joe Biden said ought to be admired, let's look at this quote from Joe Biden in an interview with the Washington Post. You can see there it says, speaking generally, Biden added, for a woman to come forward in the glaring light of focus nationally, you've got to start off with the presumption that at least the essence of what she is talking about is real. Whether or not she forgets facts, whether or not she's been, it's been made worse or better over time, but nobody fails to understand this like jumping into the cauldron. So, a couple really important things in this quote. First of all, Joe Biden is asserting that if a woman is willing to come into the spotlight, it must mean that there's at least something to her allegations. So does that mean that when Tara Reid comes into the spotlight to accuse him that, well, maybe what she said happened didn't happen in the sense that he didn't penetrate her, but he did sexually assault her? Does that mean that that would be believing the essence of what she's saying is true? That maybe he didn't, she didn't do, ex or sorry, he did not do exactly what she said, but something similar to that did happen. Something of a sexual nature where he pinned her up against the wall and did something to her happened. And another thing that I find hilarious is that at that point, when he wasn't the one in the hot seat, he said, you know, whether or not she believes facts, 
or whether or not those facts have changed over time, that shouldn't be a factor in whether or not we believe that the essence of what they're saying is real if they're willing to come forward like this. Uh, well, shouldn't it? Like, whether or not the person's story changes four or five times, that should be a big deal. The reason that he said that is because at the time, Christine Ford and some of the other people that had accused Kavanaugh, their stories had been changing. They could not keep a consistent story because their stories were made up. When it comes to Joe Biden, it seems as though that because Tara Reid's details have shifted a little bit and she's had an issue keeping a consistent story, which, by the way, as I've said many times on the program before, I don't necessarily believe Tara Reid. I think that the evidence that she has is not really all that compelling. And she has messed up some details here and there. So maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't think that the evidence is there to con- that would be able to convict Joe Biden. And I do still believe in the standard of innocence until proven guilty. That's not the point of what I'm saying. What I am saying is all of the things that Joe Biden said back then would mean that we would have to believe his accuser now that she should be given the benefit of the doubt that the essence of what she's talking about is real, whether or not she remembers the facts or not. I find that to be a very important thing because usually if somebody can't remember the facts or they're constantly getting their facts mixed up, that's usually the sign of a made-up story. Any forensic investigator or somebody that that works with victims will tell you the reason that in our criminal justice system, you have to get the story over and over again, get that story from different people, and see if the details line up is because if they don't, it's a good sign that somebody is lying. And that may be what Tara Reid is doing. I don't know. But the point is, he wanted to just disregard that as a piece of evidence that she may be making it up when it was Brett Kavanaugh's accuser. He's perfectly fine with saying, yeah, that's evidence that she doesn't know what she's talking about and she's just making this up uh, when she's accusing me. Now, here's Joe Biden's denial on MSNBC that we saw over the weekend. I have not reached out to her. It's 27 years ago. This never happened. And uh, when she first made the claim, we made it clear that it never happened. And uh, that's as simple as that. The best of my knowledge, there's been no complaints made against me in terms of my Senate career, in terms of my office and anything that's been run. Look, this is an open book. There's nothing for me to hide. Nothing at all. Look, from the very beginning, I've said believing women means taking the woman's claim seriously when she steps forward and, and then vet it, look into it. This, this, that, that's true in this case as well. Women have a right to be heard and the, and the press should rigorously investigate claims they make. I'll always uphold that principle. But in the end, in every case, the truth is what matters. And in this case, the truth is the claims are false. Where was all this nuance during the Kavanaugh hearings? Because the thing is, the standard that Joe Biden just presented, you could put that monologue, take Joe Biden's voice out of it, just have it transcribed down there, and it would line up almost exactly with what I was saying during the Kavanaugh hearings. That women should be taken seriously. When they make an accusation like that, this, we should hear them out, and there should be an investigation. 
but that ultimately we should make a decision based on where that evidence leads and they should not be given some kind of default benefit of the doubt just because they make an accusation. Take them seriously, but this hashtag believe all women stuff is nonsense. I remember Joe Biden speaking about this during the Kavanaugh hearing. All of this nuance was not there. There was not a call by Joe Biden to vet the person. There was no call by Joe Biden to investigate and just follow wherever the evidence leads. Like I said, I agree with practically everything Joe Biden just said. I just wish that he had said the exact same thing when all this was happening to Brett Kavanaugh. It's almost like his standard changed a little bit when all of a sudden the accuser was accusing him. And in this same interview with Mika Brzezinski, uh, this he tries to do this dance where he's explaining that the standards he had then and the standards that he had now are the same, even though, as you can plainly see, nothing could be further from the truth. But why is it different now? Do you regret what you said during the Kavanaugh hearings? What I said during the Kavanaugh hearings was that she had a right to be heard. And the fact that she came forward, the presumption would be she's telling the truth unless it's proved she wasn't telling the truth. Ooh, Joe Biden just shot himself in the foot because what he just did was say that the standard that I had was that, that she should be heard. Okay, I'm with him on that. And then he says, but she should be, whatever she's saying should be presumed to be true unless you can prove it to be false. Um, no, that's guilty until proven innocent. And that's the exact opposite of the standard you just said on TV that you want applied to you. You said that when it comes to your accuser, well, it's not true. And because it's not true, then because she has not presented evidence that shows that it is true, then I should be let off the hook. But you said when it came to Christine Blasey Ford that she should be heard and she should be presumed to be true. What she's saying should be presumed to be true unless it is proven to be false. No, that's guilty until proven innocent. That's the opposite of the American criminal justice system. That's the opposite of the way that the court of public opinion should operate. Obviously it doesn't, but the way that it should operate and the standard that I've held and most conservatives have held is that you should presume that a person is innocent until you can prove they did something wrong. So Joe Biden can't even keep track of what Joe Biden was saying in his own standards within the same 20 minute interview. He can't even keep himself straight then much less by a span of two years between how he handled the thing with Kavanaugh and how he's handling it now. Mika Brzezinski continues to press him on this. He tries to explain why that was a completely different scenario. As it pertained to Dr. Ford, everyone wanted, uh, high-level Democrats said she should be believed, that they believed it happened. You said if someone like Dr. Ford were to come out, the essence of what she is saying has to be believed, has to be real. No. Why? And no, what I Why? Said, it has Why to be is it real for Dr. Ford, but not for Tara Reid? Because the facts are that, look, she I'm not suggesting she had no right to come forward. And I never and I'm not saying any woman, they should come forward. They should be heard. And then it should be investigated. It should be investigated. And if there's anything that makes it that is consistent with what's being said and she makes the case or the case is made, then it should be believed. But ultimately, the truth matters. The truth matters. It's period. Well, first of all, killer conclusion there to that point. It's period. Maybe it is period. I don't know, but I'm not really sure 
what that means, Joe Biden. But the re the thing that is so much of a standout here is that he's trying to make this case that when, when somebody comes forward, it was completely different then than it is now. Because it does seem as though the truth only really matters when they're accusing you. It seems as though that Joe Biden's tolerance for nuance and desire to get to the bottom of things really only matters when it's you. Because keep in mind, the evidence that we have against Joe Biden, and I still don't think that it rises to the level of saying that we can prove that Joe Biden did this. I, I've been very transparent about that. But the evidence that we have against Joe Biden is already significantly more than we ever had against Clarence Thomas or against Brett Kavanaugh. And so his standard doesn't make any sense. If he did believe the women then and didn't believe the women now, even though there was more evidence now than there is then, then it's obvious that what Joe Biden was doing was politically posturing and trying to do something that benefited his party, not uphold some kind of standard. That's the issue that's going on here. And by the way, if you don't believe me, here's another clip from back in 2008 with PBS NewsHour where Joe Biden was talking about the standard and his, the part that he played as a senator when it came to Anita Hill. Women should be believed. I believed Anita Hill. I said I believed Anita Hill. I voted against Clarence Thomas when she decided she was willing to come forward. What I feel badly about is the inability to be able to silence the Republican critics on the committee. What people wanted me to do was to gavel down other senators who were harassing her, who were harassing her. And I wish I had had the power or a way to communicate. But you may remember, I got in shouting matches with witnesses who were attacking her. Um, I got criticized for shouting at witnesses who were making these statements. Well, first of all, PBS NewsHour has to get some quieter chairs because that was incredibly distracting through that whole interview. The You can hear the chair moving back and forth with Joe Biden. But anyway... If I'm understanding what Joe Biden just said correctly, then what he just called for is a mere allegation being enough to disqualify somebody from getting your vote. Because he said, I believed Anita Hill. And again, the only evidence that we had was Anita Hill's word that it happened. We didn't have four witnesses that claimed that it happened like we do with Tara Reid. We didn't have a contemporaneous news segment where the victim's mother was calling into Larry King and asking about sexual assault and saying that her daughter had been sexually assaulted by her boss. We don't have that. Not with Anita Hill. Yet you did believe Anita Hill so much so that you said it disqualified him and it's the reason that I voted against him. Look, if you don't like Justice Thomas... If you don't like that he's a conservative on the bench and he's pro-life and all of those things, okay, I disagree with you, but at least you're being honest about it. You're saying it was the, the reason that you voted for, or sorry, voted against Clarence Thomas is because of Anita Hill. But when it comes to an allegation that's actually more credible against you, you don't think that that should disqualify people from voting for you. I mean, there's about six different ways that this thing is a double standard now. Joe Biden has convicted Joe Biden according to Joe Biden's own standard. 
I think that standard is wrong. I think that that ought not be the standard. But Joe Biden did believe it then, as long as it's not applied to him. That's the issue that you're running into. And another thing that was really staggering about that is he actually said that he feels remorse and wishes that he had been able to silence any critics of Anita Hill. Huh. So do you think that Republicans ought to just be able to silence any critics or sorry, the, the Democrat should be able to silence any critics of, of Joe Biden? Like, I, I don't get the logic there. He's saying that he wishes that he could have shut down any Republicans that were even alleging that maybe these things were untrue. Does that mean that Joe Biden shouldn't be able to speak out against the accusations made against Joe Biden? Would you want to silence the critics that are saying, hey, maybe what Tara Reid is saying isn't right? I mean, the, the level of gymnastics that Joe Biden's mind is able to do would be pretty impressive if it were, you know, still there. But obviously looking at all of this and, and looking at the evidence, looking at what Joe Biden said then and how his standard has completely changed now, it's obvious that these decisions were made for political expediency, not out of some altruistic concern for women or some pursuit of justice. Ultimately, he was for the uh, uh, he was for ruining Brett Kavanaugh's life because he doesn't like Brett Kavanaugh. He was for ruining Clarence Thomas's life and career because he doesn't like Clarence Thomas. When it's an accuser coming against him, oh, you should still vote for me. You shouldn't just believe somebody just because they accuse someone. That's crazy talk. Well, it wasn't then, Joe Biden. And the double standard is pretty obvious. And when it comes to Mika Brzezinski, I will say this. I applaud her for doing some real journalisming, but I'm not going to give her a whole bunch of points for this because I think what's actually happening, because MSNBC is the more liberal of the networks, they're, they're you know, CNN's pretty dang liberal, but MSNBC takes it to a whole nother level. I think what's actually happening is the far progressive side of the Democrat Party understands that if Joe Biden is the candidate, this thing's going to wind up being a bloodbath. And because of that, they're looking to replace him now so they don't have to do it butted right up against the election. Which, frankly, I think is probably a smart move. But I think what's going on here is they're trying to torpedo him and make him unfit as a candidate now so they can move in somebody that they like better. And if I had the chance to do that, I would do the same. But I'm saying that to point out that I don't even think that Mika Brzezinski, because I think if this was MSNBC's candidate of choice and you had the same thing happen to them, there's no way that you would have seen this level of investigation and curiosity going in. And let's also point out, this is the only news outlet that has asked Joe Biden about these accusations. And they did so 35 days after they broke. So more than a month that Joe Biden has not had to answer for these things, we finally get some kind of response from the media on this 35 days after it happens. Congratulations, guys. All kinds of journalisming going on. So let's give Mika Brzezinski some credit where credit is due, but let's not overdo it. There's, we shouldn't be lauding praise on somebody that, uh, on a network that waited 35 days to ask these questions. The second dose of this is that not only do you see Joe Biden himself trying to do all these mental gymnastics to justify why people should continue to vote for him, despite the fact that 
he was a big proponent of believe all women until the woman that he wanted people to listen to turned out to be, you know, accusing him. And then all of a sudden you don't believe those women. So the second half of this is the people that actually are trying to play this same game of believing women and also voting for Joe Biden. There are people that actually do believe Tara Reid and are going to vote for Joe Biden anyway, which is a, a level of psychosis on colossal levels. This is a, a tweet from Lisa Bloom. She's a prominent supporter of the Me Too movement and a, a women's right attorney. And she says, I believe you, Tara Reid. You have the people who remember you told them about this decades ago. We know that he is handsy. You're not making, you're not asking for money. I assumed that that's what she means. She just put a dollar sign there. You've obviously struggled mightily with this, but I still have to fight Trump, so I will support Joe Biden. But I believe you, and I'm sorry. Boy, I gotta tell you, tribalism is a heck of a drug. For somebody to actually come out and say, I believe that this person sexually assaulted this woman in, in, a, in a horribly grotesque way, I'm going to support him anyway, because I really don't like Trump. I mean, you're a psychopath at that point. That you actually would, would vote for somebody whom you believe to be a rapist. And, you know, I'm cool with that, because we got to do something against Trump, am I right? Uh, no, nothing really justifies that. And Lisa Bloom, it, it may interest you to know that when it, because I know that there are going to be people that make this comparison and remember that I didn't vote for Trump the first time. It wasn't because of the things that he, that were alleged against him just because there was no proof. And, and I kept the same standard then as I have now. I didn't see any proof that Joe or that, that Donald Trump had actually done a lot of the things that he was accused of. Frankly, wouldn't have put it past him considering his history, but there was no credible person claiming that this took place. But anyway, there are going to be people that try to make a comparison. And, and by the way, she makes the same thing in, in a tweet a little bit later that, well, Trump is, is being accused of these things, too. And so we've got a choice between one or the other. Yeah, but you just said you believe Tara Reid and that Joe Biden actually did this. The difference is Trump supporters that voted for Trump, they don't believe the allegations. Now, Lisa Bloom apparently just believes both of them and says, well, I'm going to vote for one of the two rapists. Um, no, nothing would justify that. I mean, I could see why you wouldn't vote for Trump in that situation if you do actually believe the allegations against him, but you can either not vote or vote third party or do something. The idea that I can justify supporting a rapist because I don't like the other guy, that's insanity right there. But... The Trump supporters don't believe the allegations. They don't think that he molested or, or raped anybody. They don't believe that that ever took place. And so that's really the big difference here. But secondly, it's important to understand who Lisa Bloom is. Well, she's a prominent women's rights lawyer, and she's also the daughter of Gloria Allred. Now, who is Gloria Allred? Well, Allred was the attorney of Roy Moore's accuser, Beverly Young Nelson. And you may recall that Beverly Young Nelson actually forged a document to make it seem as though that Roy Moore did know her and was using that as her big 
piece of proof that Roy Moore knew her and was coming on to her at the tender age of 16, and that he also sexually assaulted her. But you may also remember that the New York Times reported that she admitted that she was putting up parts of the yearbook. So basically, Roy Moore signed his name, and then she added a whole bunch of crap around it. Only his signature, where he signed her yearbook, was correct, and all the other stuff she basically used to plant evidence to make it seem as though that they had a closer relationship than they really did. This is the kind of person that raised, uh, and, and this was the representative of that accuser, she raised the person that is making this tweet. Well, I guess I can kind of see where she's coming from now. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Points for consistency, I guess, because she's re she believes Tara Reid, who has some credibility, but she also believed a person that not only had zero credibility, but also we caught just making up evidence in Roy Moore's case. I, I guess there is some level of consistency there, but it's not one that I would brag about. So that's who Lisa Bloom is. Alyssa Milano, who is a prominent person in the Me Too movement, similarly tried to justify and, and do her own mental gymnastics and explain how she can be a person that believes in hashtag believe all women, but also somehow still support Joe Biden. This was in a op-ed that she wrote in Deadline. So this is Alyssa Milano. As an activist, it can be very easy to develop a black and white view of the world. Things are clearly wrong or clearly right. Harvey Weinstein's decades of rape were clearly wrong. Okay, yeah, no, no qualms there. Donald Trump's alleged sexual assaults were clearly wrong. But they're alleged. You even said they were alleged. Um, they would be wrong if they were real, but you can't say that an alleged crime is wrong because you don't know if it happened or not. Brett Kavanaugh's accusations, told consistently, consistently over decades by his victims and supported by polygraph tests, were clearly wrong. Again, they're alleged, and a lot of the stuff that you're saying isn't true. In fact, we even had people that were witnesses to Kavanaugh that Blasey Ford and other Kavanaugh ac accusers came out and said, no, no, this person was at this event, and that person goes, uh, no, I wasn't. Not only do I not remember that, that never happened. That happened over and over again when it came to Kavanaugh. There was never even a shred of evidence that came out that suggested that the things that, Kav that were said about Kavanaugh were true. So those things clearly wrong, but the accusation against Joe Biden, that's not wrong. What kind of reality is Alyssa Milano living in? So she continues on here. So were Matt Lowers, Bill Cosby's, and so many others. As we started holding politicians and business leaders and celebrities around the world accountable for their actions, it was easy to sort things into their respective buckets. This is wrong, this is right. Holding people accountable for their actions was not only right, it was just. Except it's not always so easy. And living in the gray areas is something we're trying to figure out in a world of social media. Um, social media, that doesn't really change the, the makeup of whether something is moral or not. I don't know. Anyway, but here's something social media doesn't afford us. Nuance. The world is gray, and as uncomfortable as that makes people, gray is where the real change happens. Black and white is easy. 
Gray is the place women can come together out of the glare of the election and speak out truths, our doubts, our hopes, our convictions, and test them against the light and the dark. Yeah, here's the problem with all of that. It seems like the world only got gray and complicated the instance that somebody accused somebody that you liked. Because with absolutely no credibility whatsoever, you had people coming forward against Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, that was clearly wrong. With some credibility, but nothing that really amounts to something that could be proven, when people do the same thing against Donald Trump, oh, that's clearly wrong. And by the way, that's not my words. That's your own admission, saying that those things were clearly wrong. When somebody accused Joe Biden, ah, hang on a second. The world's not black and white. The world's really complicated. We need some nuance here. It's so abundantly transparent to anybody that has some semblance of fair-mindedness that Melissa Milano only discovered that the world was really complicated and that there was all this nuance when all of a sudden the accusations were coming against somebody that she really likes and wants to support. That's the difference here. She continues on in this uh, piece. It's not up to women to admonish or absolve perpetrators or to be regarded as complicit when we don't denounce them. Nothing makes this clearer than the women who are supporting Joe Biden, even though even with these accusations, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Amy Klobuchar, Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren have all endorsed Biden and like me continue to support him. But it's an impossible choice. Uh, No, it's really not. It's not an impossible choice at all. It's a really easy choice. I think that it is possible to just not believe the woman and say that the accusations have not risen to the level of credibility I'm willing to to say that I'm not going to vote for the guy or not. It's not an impossible choice at all. It's actually very, very simple. The problem is that Alyssa Milano realizes that if she does that, it shows that she's being completely inconsistent. It shows that she has a completely different standard for Joe Biden that she had for all of the other people. Um, she suddenly made that decision really complicated and really hard to make, and now all of a sudden she's feeling turmoil, and here's why. She has created a principle for herself that it is impossible for her to follow. You see, when the accusations were coming against people that she already didn't like and was already going to be politically against, it was very, very easy for her to stick to her principles. This principle of believing all women by default and just because a person has lady parts, that that person is automatically the person we're going to side with, automatically the person we're going to believe. Well, that was a super easy principle for her to follow when that principle only hurt people that she already hated. See, that's the thing about principles. If you're actually a principled person, then you stick to them regardless of whether it is easy or whether it is hard. For example, if you are a Christian and believe that sex before marriage is wrong, there are going to be times where that principle is very, very easy to stick to. When somebody were to come up to you and offer something like that and and you're just not interested in them, well, that principle is pretty easy to uphold when that happens. But when a very attractive person that you really like does the same thing, all of a sudden it's really hard to stick to that principle. That's the nature of a principle. And the difference here is, Alyssa Milano decided that old principle 
uh, that old principle really wasn't worth sticking to now that it's going to be really difficult or uncomfortable for me to stick to it. See, now that my principle would make me do something that I don't want to do, maybe I shouldn't stick to that principle, which, by the way, is actually the correct thing. But the way to handle that is to say, you know what, my principle was wrong. I was wrong. That's how you handle that situation if you determine your principle was incorrect. What she's doing is trying to have her cake and eat it too. Not follow my principle, the the standard that I set up for myself, but also not following through on it at any point where it makes me uncomfortable or means I have to make a difficult decision. Also, another thing that she brings up here where she talks about, uh, well, it's wrong to call women that are not talking up about people that they politically like complicit when it comes to this. Look, if Alyssa Milano were just an actor, and we're not somebody that was political. Heck, even if she was political, but wasn't all up in the Me Too movement, I don't think anybody would have said anything about her not saying anything about Joe Biden. I really don't. Because, frankly, I don't care what Alyssa Milano thinks about our political candidates. The only reason that people are pointing this out, the only reason that this is being brought up is because you chose, of your own free will, to insert yourself into this fight this fight of Me Too, and all of a sudden when another instance that the Me Too movement should have an opinion on because it deals with something like this, people start asking you why your standard changed all of a sudden. Don't act like the victim here because, oh, well now I'm complicit because I'm not saying something about Joe Biden. Well, yeah, if you've said something about everybody else that had an accusation lobbed against them, and all of a sudden you're just silent on the one when it happens to somebody you like, well, yeah, that's a pretty obvious double standard. That is complicity. Because we know if Joe Biden was running for the Republican nomination for president, you'd have something to say about it. That's the difference here. And so, yes, it's complicity, not because you're a woman and you have to have an opinion on this political issue. It's because you already inserted yourself into the middle of this story, into the middle of this discussion. And all of a sudden, when it gets hard, to have that conversation, you want to back out and not have anybody call you out on that. That's really the issue that's going on here. And then Alyssa Milano's final little piece that we're going to read from this. If it falls upon women to navigate within the system of men's design to make pragmatic choices that we hope will lead us to a more equal future. I love the fact that the system was just made by men. Women have had the ability to vote since the 1920s. Like, even before then, there were political influences. So I love how that, that's just the man system. The reason that it's hard for us is because that's, that's the system the man made. Just ridiculous. Anyway, I still fully support Joe Biden because I believe it's the best choice for the future. And again, it is not up to women to absolve predators. How do progressive women choose between the word I can't say, but a euphemism for a woman's lady part, grabber-in-chief, who has done so much damage to our country, and a man who has allegations made against him. Here's the funny part about that. I agree that those comments made by President Trump were absolutely disgusting. I said it at the time. I was actually pretty harsh on him, and, and you can go back and listen to my show if you don't believe me. But what Joe Biden was talking about doing was what, or sorry, exactly what Donald Trump was talking about doing was what Joe Biden is accused of actually doing. We're talking about a difference between someone talking about doing something and somebody being accused of actually doing the thing. And here's another big difference. If you go back and you listen to the Billy Bush tapes where President Trump talked about grabbing them by the you-know-what, 
it's important to note that he was saying, they'll let you do it and they won't care. What Joe Biden was talking about there, which still wrong, still disgusting, not sticking up for it at all. I'm just saying that if we're comparing it to what Joe Biden is accused of doing, Joe Biden is accused of doing something that was not consensual. Donald Trump was specifically talking about doing something gross and disgusting, especially for a married man uh, with unmarried women. But he was talking about something that had consent behind it, that they wanted that done to them. Weird and gross as that is, that's what he was talking about. That is not the accusation that is lobbed against Joe Biden. Anyway, she continues on. In a black and white world, we would have women rally behind. We would have a woman to rally behind to replace Trump instead of an electoral college, which says white men are the people driving the charge yet again this year. Yeah, actually, that's not right. This is another reason why actors and actresses don't know their politics. You see, actually, in our current electoral college system, do you know what the most coveted demographic is? It's not black people. It's not white men. It's not cities. The demographic that politicians most want to have that are running for president are suburban white women. Basically, the demographic that Alyssa Milano tends to speak to. Because they tend to be the swing voters. I think that that says something about the nature of women being more willing to change their mind, which, you know, could be both a compliment and a cut down at the same time, depending on how you take it. But the reason that that is the most coveted one is because those are the ones that tend to make a decision based on who the person is. They don't make it based on party loyalty. They make it based on who they are, you know, basically the flavor of the month. And suburban white women are right now the most influential political demographic in the country. Because because of the Electoral College, they tend to be the ones that make the decisions. The cities are always going to go blue. The rural areas are always going to go red. That has been a, a very consistent pattern that we've seen in the Electoral College over this time. The suburbs are really the only areas that are up for grabs, and specifically suburban white women. So, actually the exact opposite is true. Suburban white women tend to be the ones that decide elections under the Electoral College. So I do find that hilarious, that the exact opposite of what she's claiming is true is actually true. But ultimately all of this, what it comes down to is tribalism is a heck of a drug. When you've convinced yourself that even if you do believe a rapist like Lisa Bloom, even if you believe that the person that you're voting for is a racist, I'm going to support him anyway because of how bad the other side is, you're a psychopath at that point. Like, I, I, I don't know of a gentler way to put it. You, you are a person that has jettisoned all reason, all logic, any form of coherent thought, and all ethical and moral faculties that you have out to the, the ether by doing that. And by the way, there are people that do it on the other side too. I'm not saying that this is something that only happens on the left. Like I said, the difference in Trump supporters is at least they don't believe that Donald Trump is a racist. But there were all kinds of moral compromises that people on the right swore that they would never make that they absolutely made to vote for Donald Trump. I'm, I'm in no way excusing that. But this is a case study in what is wrong with American politics right now. That people are so convinced that it is a, a, a dichotomy and that their vote only matters if their guy is winning. The, the primary thing that is important is Team GOP or Team Democrat. And ultimately, that's the only thing that matters in the end. I, I'm sorry. 
I, I can't get on board with that. And I think that really what we've seen here today with the comparisons, not only the double standards with Joe Biden on the left, but what we've been seeing over the past several years with the right, I, I don't get how a person can do that to themselves mentally. But there we are. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Today's Chaplain Report is going to be continuing in the book of Samuel. And as you may recall from yesterday, Samuel has just found the king, or who is going to become the king at some point, because he's been ordered by God that he must find the person that is going to be king and anoint him, and then he will be the ruler over God's people in Israel. Samuel finds Saul, who is out there looking for his father's donkey, takes him, makes him a guest of honor, dines with him, and then upon the next day, this is the, the scene that we sort of start our story on. This happens out in public, in the streets. And this is where our story begins in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now I know that that passage is significantly shorter than what we usually look at for our chaplain's reports. But the reason that I did that is because there are three very important truths that we can draw from this very, very short little passage of Scripture. Samuel coming to Saul, anointing his head with oil, crowning him essentially the king of Israel. First of all, the first major truth is that a prophet must be the one to do the anointing. You'll notice that the way that particular verse is written is, has not the Lord anointed you? So yes, Samuel was the one physically picking up the flask of oil and pouring it over Saul's head. But ultimately what was going on there is that it was not Samuel, but the Lord who was anointing him. It was the Lord that instructed Samuel to do this. And the action that is given in that statement, the, the attribution of who is doing the anointing is not Samuel, it's God. Samuel is acting as an agent and an extension of God and God's will, which means that it, when it comes to the ruler of a nation, that the way that it's supposed to happen is that God's will is supposed to be the ultimate determining factor of what is going on here. And we know from other parts in Scripture that ultimately God is the one that bestows power to anybody that has it, that he is the source of all authority. And so even bad people that do obtain authority and obtain power, God allows them to have it that they don't take it by force. It's not something that they've gained because of what they've done, that ultimately all things do come from God. And we see that even Saul, even though he's not going to be a perfect king, he's going to do a lot of things that very much displease God in the future, that he is for the time being God's anointed, God's chosen. And so that's really interesting that in this process, God must be involved and it must be an extension of his will, which is the reason that a prophet must be the one to anoint Saul as the king. Second big truth, the king is the ruler over his inheritance. Well, now that's interesting because he says he's the Lord's anointed to rule over 
his inheritance. Well, in that sentence, that would mean that the inheritance would be God's people. The kingdom of Israel, the land, the people, everything, that's something that God refers to as his inheritance? Yes. And Saul is essentially a ruler over that inheritance. So the inheritance is God's. The people are God's. The land are God's. All of that is God's. And it has to be God's will that anoints a king into power that he gives him to be the ruler over it. So that kind of suggests that instead of a king, what is really going on here is that Saul is God's steward. He is the person that has been put in charge of taking care of what is God's. He's almost like a house sitter. He's somebody that, because God has has this great nation of Israel, this people that he has purchased, he has brought them out of Egypt, they are his and his belonging, his called out. That because he owns them, and he needs someone to take care of them, and they've been begging for a king, and, and you know that story, we've already gone over that that Saul is going to be the steward that takes care and watches over them. So that's another really important truth, too, is that when we are given something, when God blesses us with something, even if it is something that is prestigious, even if it's something that people would envy, if it's some kind of great talent, or we have a lot of wealth, we have a big family, God gives us the gift of having a spouse, having children, a leadership position like an elder or a deacon, whatever it is, we have to keep in mind that we are essentially stewards. We are people that God has given charge of to take care of something that is ultimately his. We don't own it. We don't even own ourselves. If we're somebody that has given ourselves over to Christ to be washed in his blood and to have our sins forgiven, then we don't even own our own lives anymore. It's all his. And so whether we're even talking about something that is presumably ours, like our body, our house, our property, whatever it may be, it is ultimately merely something that God has imparted to us for a purpose and to do a job. We are taking care of something that is God's to make gain for him and to further the cause of his kingdom. That's what is going on here with Saul. God is telling Saul, these are my people, it is my inheritance, I am giving you rulership over them, don't screw it up. That's essentially the message that is being conveyed to Saul here. The third big truth is that this process is not showy or grand, but it is necessary. You know, when we think of a coronation for a king, we look at, for example, the royal weddings and things that we see that happen in England. Uh, whenever you see a coronation, there's always this big to-do and everybody comes out and there's all these royal banners and the king's knights are there to show his military prowess and he's always dressed in these big fancy things. None of that happens here. None of it. All that happens is Samuel goes out into a street in some town and he's not even in Jerusalem. He just walks out into the street of the little town that they're staying in and then Samuel, or sorry, Saul kneels down. Samuel pours the oil over his head. That's it. Nothing super fancy. There are witnesses there, but I mean, basically they didn't even call for a crowd. Just whoever happened to be in the vicinity at the time got to see it. I think that that was a message to Saul and something that the Lord was doing in an attempt to keep Saul humble. Now we see that as the years go on, that doesn't really stick with Saul. 
But I think there was a great deal of wisdom in God saying, this is how somebody becomes my steward, somebody becomes my anointed. There is a ceremony. There is a ceremony that is necessary, but it's relatively small in scale. It's not something that's old, grandiose. You're, you're not going to see, you know, the Spirit of the Lord descending from the heavens and uh, thundering in a voice or something. It's really just very simple. And I think that that was something that was intended to impart some humility on Saul. And I think it's kind of something that we could draw a similarity to baptism. That it's not something that's super complicated. I mean, it could literally just be you out, out there in some random river or a swimming pool, any body of water that's big enough to submerge a human body. It doesn't have to be big or fancy. And that's because I think God knows that it's important for us to stay humble. And also because what he requires of us is not something that is hard to do. To do God's work is a great monumental task. But to become a servant of God and to become somebody that is a steward essentially over the things that are his, that's actually pretty simple. And I think there is a beauty and an elegance in that simplicity. But it was still something that needed to be done. For Saul to become king and to be ruler over God's people, it was still a necessity. It was still something Saul had to do. The fact that it was symbolic, the fact that it was something that was relatively, uh, you know, not grandiose or, or not a big show or a, a big demonstration by human standards didn't detract from the fact that it needed to be done. That to be a person, to be in accordance with God's will, Saul had to be anointed. And I think what that does show to us is that the things that God asks us to do, they might be hard, but they're simple. And ultimately, as we learned from earlier in this passage, everything does ultimately belong to God. And it is only by God's will that we have those things. Just like Saul, we have an amazing responsibility to do what God wants us to do because we become his by a act of his own will. That's something we need to remember and need to live our lives accordingly. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.